0: Good morning, everyone. As Nathan introduced me earlier, my name is Chris Ambridge. I'm one of the elders here, and um, it's my privilege this morning to open God's Word. We'll be in 1 Peter, chapter 2. Um, if you're using the, the Bibles in the pews, that's found on page uh, 1015. 1015. Let's just bow our heads again and ask the Lord for his help. Heavenly Father, we we thank you this morning for your word. I pray for, for help to speak words that are true and that are helpful for everyone here. And I pray, Lord, for all of us that we would have ears to hear your words and hearts that are willing to respond in obedience and love towards you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, a new year is almost upon us, and it's not just a new year this time, it's a new decade. And so I wonder, what are your aspirations for the 20s? Or maybe to ask the question a little differently, or a similar question, given the current trajectory of your life, Where do you think you'll be in 10 years? Well, I think that our passage and the book of 1 Peter is actually going to be just a very helpful place to pause and meditate in the context of us thinking about entering into a new decade. Peter was writing to people who were grappling with having a foot in two worlds, if you like. They were believers who, in many respects, lived very normal lives. They were citizens, citizens, they were employees. They were husbands and wives. And yet they belonged to a different kingdom and a different world. They were God's people who had been transferred into his kingdom through faith in Christ. And they were struggling with this tension of having a foot in two worlds. Well, I've been spending a lot of time in 2019 um, in 1 Peter. I found it's just been a really great place to pause and meditate. Um and I've come to see how it speaks just very practically into my life. I'll be 46 in a couple of days, and I don't know whether this is a midlife crisis or not. But I've been, um, I've been grappling with questions: what is most important? I've been feeling the shortness of life, and I've been wrestling with also questions of consistency. Um, Is the focus of my time and my energy consistent with what I say I believe? Well, I think that 1 Peter just addresses many of these questions. So let us read together our passage. We'll be in chapter 2 and um, looking specifically at verses 11 and 12. So let's read it together. Well, I'll I'll read it. Um, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I chose these verses specifically because I think in many ways they capture the essence of the letter. 1 Peter's actually very rich in both the the why questions and also the, the practical teaching or the imperatives that follow from them. He starts this letter by dwelling on the indicatives of the gospel and he spends time reminding the believers of what God has done for them and in them. He reminds them of who they are. And then our verses are actually kind of at the, the juncture as he begins to turn towards the imperatives of what he's just said. Just look at it again. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, who they are, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So that's really my structure for, for what I'm going to say this morning. Firstly, we'll reflect upon who we are as God's people. And then secondly, or think about what does it mean in the context of our daily lives. And as we do this, I hope that, especially in anticipating the new year, that this will be helpful as we all think about the trajectory of our lives. So firstly, my first point is remember that as God's children, this world is not your home. Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. The... Um, The NIV translation says, Aliens and strangers in the world. Peter's telling his hearers that there are people out of place and that this world is not their home. I wonder if you recognize these lyrics. Don't take coffee, I take tea, my dear. I like my toast done on one side. And you can hear it in my accent when I talk. I'm an Englishman in New York. Well, you've probably recognized that song from the 80s, That Sting. And he was grappling amusing on his experience as an Englishman in New York. And then he makes this statement, I'm an alien, I'm a legal alien, I'm an Englishman in New York. He realizes that he doesn't quite fit in, that he's a bit of a misfit. He's a foreigner and aspects of his life are just different to what's around him. We'll take another example. I actually grew up in a regional city in the UK, and um, after the Second World War, the British Empire, um, that was still intact just about at that point, had many colonies, and there was a tremendous labor shortage. And so um, the British Empire actually invited... Um, People to come from the colonies, especially from the West Indies and the Indian subcontinent, to help to to just kind of rebuild the nation. And um, my friend's parents came from India. Um, I'd love going to their home. And there were so many aspects of their lives that were just very distinctively Indian. So the food was amazing. Um, They spoke uh, Punjabi. Um, They wore Indian clothes, some of them. Maybe their parents especially, um, and there were traditions that they kept. Well, my friend was um, in the second generation. He was born in the UK, and so in many respects, he kind of straddled two cultures. And he decided to marry an English girl. And this, for his parents, just was a moment of massive crisis. I was the best man um at his wedding, and we did not know if they were going to come until the day of the wedding. Um, And I think for his parents, it raised just significant questions of identity, like who are we and what is appropriate for us. Well, Peter is reminding the believers that they are a people who do not belong. But this is a more fundamental displacement. He's saying that they do not belong in this world. They are exiles in a more extreme sense of the word. They are resident aliens, if you like. So why is this the case? Well, I think we have to kind of go back to chapter 1 to kind of see that. If you look with me at chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, uh, this is what he says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Well, a fundamental inward change occurred. They'd been born again, and they had become children of a different father, of God himself. If we think about it, the identity of our parents has a significant defining impact on us. Cultural, ethnic, economic, philosophical—we are who we are—is in many respects defined by whose we are and where we came from. You know, perhaps in this world, in the more modern world, um, the impact of our roots is not necessarily as significant as it used to be. But as Christians, our identity is most certainly defined in relation to our father and our privileged place in his family. And if you look again in chapter 1, verse 3, we see how this happened. He says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, Christians understand that the resurrection of Christ is the most important event in history. It's the hinge, if you like, upon which everything else turns. If it didn't happen, everything would be different. But because it did happen, Christians understand that they are raised with Christ to a completely new life. We've been born again. Well, perhaps you're here this morning and you don't consider yourself a Christian. And firstly, um, we're really glad you're here and um, we're really glad that you're, you're listening. But I wonder whether you've thought carefully about the claims of Christ and his gospel At this time of year, at time, Christians celebrate the first coming of Christ. But I wonder if you know that we understand that he was actually born to die. And why? Well, we understand that all of us are in need of a Savior, and that is why he came. So the Bible is very clear, and it teaches us that we have a sin problem. That is, we are at our core actually rebels in God's world. We understand that we've all refused his rightful kingship over our lives and have actually, in a real sense, shaken our fist at him in defiance. We want to live our own way. That is basically at its core what sin is. It's a posture of rebellion against our creator. And so the acts of sin follow from this fundamental posture and disposition of our hearts And so the bad news of the the gospel that we have to accept first is that in God's estimation, we are actually treasonous rebels. And though he is infinitely loving and just, he is legitimately angry with us. Sentimentalism may say that basically it's God's job to love us and to forgive us, but this is not true. This is not what the Bible says. He does not owe us anything. Rather, we face the terrible reality of having offended him, the all-knowing, all-powerful God who is our creator and judge. But this is where the good news of the gospel comes, and it's a glorious but. In his infinite love and mercy, he has provided a way for us to be saved. Christ came and lived the life that we have not and could not live. He offered himself willingly as a substitute for our sin and bore the wrath that was due to us through his death on the cross. And as I said, he was born to die, but he did not stay dead. And God raised him to victory over death. And that historical event changes everything. And it's because of this that Christians understand themselves to be born again into this living hope that I've been talking about. Well, during the, the the early days after Jesus was raised from the dead, people asked the same Peter who wrote this book the question. Well, what should we do? And this is how he responded. He said, "Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the gift, for the forgiveness, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit." And that's just a wonderful offer of the gospel. Salvation may be received by anyone as a a, a free gift through repentance and believing in Christ. Well, if you'd like to talk more about this, um, feel free to come and talk to me after the the service or perhaps the person you came with. We'd, We'd love to talk to you more about it. Well, for those of us who are trusting in Christ, I would like us to note that the new birth is something that is directional. We are born again to a living hope and to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And this is just really key. I think often we can just think of ourselves as being saved from our sins and saved from hell. That is true, but we are also saved towards something not only do we become part of God's family, but we also gain an inheritance. And the story of the Bible is that God has a plan to establish an everlasting kingdom ruled by his everlasting king. And in that kingdom, all that is wrong with this world that I'm sure all of us are aware of on a daily basis, all of that will be put right. Their death will be no more neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. That's Revelation 21 verse 4. So Christ will return a second time to establish this eternal reign of justice and peace. And according to Peter, this is the inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Just let's think about those words. Imperishable. Undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. In his letter, Peter, it's interesting, keeps referring to um, precious metals. He talks about silver and gold, and you know he says he makes the point that they are perishable, even though refined by fire, even the best and the most apparently imperishable things in this world are not lasting. They are perishable. And then think for a moment, perhaps it's not material things, but positions and prestige. Just look down in in chapter 1, verse 24. This is what he says. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So, I wonder, where where is your hope resting this morning? Where is my hope resting this morning? As you contemplate the new year, what are your expectations and what are your aspirations? Are they shaped by this perspective, I wonder? Just look at chapter 1, verse 13 with me. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let us not waste our lives pursuing perishable and fading hopes. Resolve that the 20s will not be a decade of pursuing houses, cars, vacations, and careers. Rather, may the horizon of your hopes extend beyond these foothills, because that's all they are. Let them extend beyond them to the Himalayas of what Peter is talking to us about here the Himalaya mountain range of heaven that is our inheritance. So let us remember that as God's children, this world is not our home. Well, now let's move on to the imperatives that Peter follows with after reminding us of this. So I I secondly want us to think about how we should be displaying the marvelous light of Christ, and it's through two things specifically. Abstaining from sinful desires and secondly, doing good in all aspects of life. So firstly, abstaining from sinful desires. Look with me again at chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Well, to understand what Peter has in mind when he's talking about the passions of the flesh. I think it's helpful maybe just to take a step back and and look at some of the ways that he kind of unpacks this um, through the rest of the book. I'm just going to read to you a few phrases and verses. So in chapter 1, verse 14, he says, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. 2, verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and slander. Chapter 3, verse 9. Do do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling. 3, verse 10. Let him keep his tongue from evil, and his lips from speaking deceit. And then chapter 4, verse 3. The time is past. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, Passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Well, this is quite an ugly list, isn't it? Unrestrained selfish desires. Tongues used to subtly or maybe not so subtly hurt others. Carnal appetites unchecked, kind of flooding over someone's life. And then idolatrous worship. And notice that according to 2 verse 11, these passions are not passive. They're, see what he says, waging war against your soul. I think we will do really well to think about this, that sin, the world, and the devil are not a passive force. We have an enemy who is waging war against us. And actually later in the book, in in chapter 5 verse 8, he says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The Japanese Empire attacked Pearl Harbor in 1941. It's an event that's infamous in U.S. and, I guess, world history. And it was an act of war. And whether the U.S. liked it or not, they found themselves at war from that moment forward. If they hadn't, the consequences would have just been devastating. They had to defend themselves. And similarly, the devil seeks to take territory in our lives, and his purpose is to destroy us, and especially our worship of Christ. And so we cannot be passive in the face of this. He uses indwelling sin and worldliness to erode our devotion to Christ. So what are we to do? Well, according to Peter here in verse 11, we're to abstain from the passions of the flesh. I found a helpful definition for abstain. It said to refrain deliberately and often with an effort of self-denial from an action or practice. Well, I think the words deliberately and often are actually really helpful for us in this context. It reminds us that abstaining involves an act of the will, but it's also a repeated effort rather than a one-time resolve. And also that effort is involved. You know, wars are not one um, sitting in front of the TV pressing the remote control. Wars involve an all-out fight to the death. And theologians have, theologians have a word for this um, fight in the life of a Christian. They they use the word mortification, the killing of the acts of the flesh. And so the point is, is that um, personal holiness is not something that we effortlessly slide into. There is effort involved, and that effort has to be targeted deliberately and deployed like a weapon to destroy the attacks of the enemy. Passivism is not an option for us as Christians. And I also want us to just think about the way that this is a serious battle. It's actually a battle of life and death. I don't know about you, but sadly, I've been a Christian long enough to see casualties in this war. Fellow church members and even pastors who've allowed the desires of the flesh and the world to take hold of them to a point where Christ's commands were no longer ultimate. It's often a process. A sin that might have at one time been troublesome to somebody is occasionally entertained. And then it slowly becomes more frequent. And then eventually it takes on a level of normality. And then other sins begin to follow on its tails to a point where they overwhelm like a flood and the commands of the gospel are sadly and tragically a faint echo in the distance. I urge you, don't let that be you. Be deliberate and consistent in abstaining from the passions of the flesh. I think that 2020 will probably be the year that I become a U.S. citizen. Um, they call it naturalization, apparently. I don't think there's anything morally wrong with it, um, although the queen may raise her eyebrows. Um, but I think we must clear, be clear that naturalization for a Christian should never happen. We are citizens of God's kingdom, and we are to act accordingly. Don't assimilate yourself to the world. Similar to immigrant communities, we are to be protective of our identity. We are not defined by language, food, and customs, but by our allegiance to Christ and his commands. We are disciples, and we are to follow in his steps. So I wonder, where is the war raging in your life this morning? Where are you being tempted? Or perhaps it doesn't feel like a war. Where is there a level of comfort that, if you really think about it, shouldn't exist? I urge you to take time this week to think and to pray about this question. It's an important one. Well, I do want to just take a moment... um, and recognize that there may be some of you here this morning who are already feeling discouraged because of your fight against sin. And I just want to say a few words to you. Firstly, be encouraged that you're fighting. If you're taking God's side against your sin, then that reflects the fact that you have an allegiance to Christ. Secondly, the gospel teaches us that we are in ourselves powerless to conquer sin. There is only one man who has ever done this, and that's Christ. And because he is victorious, by his spirit, he's able to help us in our weaknesses. The gospel is the glorious message that our identity is not tied to our performance. What a wonderful truth that is. We became God's children by his initiative and simply repenting and believing so when Peter calls us in these verses to abstain from the passions of the flesh, it's, it's like a call for us to live in alignment with our identity. It's, to call, it's a call to live like a citizen of heaven. And the Spirit will empower us to do this. He brings forth his good fruit in our lives as we seek to follow Christ. So, We are sojourners and aliens, and let us to resolve to abstain from the sinful desires that wage war against our souls. But that's not all. Peter doesn't just tell them not to do a bunch of things. He also urges them towards positive action. And and that's the second thing that I want us to see. We must display the light of Christ by doing good in all aspects of life. Look with me again at verse 13. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Well, having reminded them of who they are, he then turns to imperatives for action in the midst of normal life. And I think that verse 13 is actually something of a kind of summary statement that is preparing him to kind of dive into more specific areas of life or arenas of life and and to help the readers of his letter to understand what does it mean to live for Christ in a fallen world. So he actually helps his readers to see what it might mean to live for Christ in some specific arenas of life. Firstly, civil society, that's in chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. He then turns to the world of work and being an employee, that's chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. He talks about marriage in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. And then there's a kind of longer section after that from three eight to 4.19 where he's more just kind of talking about living generally, you know, how are we to live. Well, we don't have time, and you're probably relieved to hear that we're not going to look at all of those, Um, but I'd like to look at just one of them, and I think that we'll be able to draw out some principles from that. But before we do that, I do want to just pause for a moment and notice an underlying theme here. Peter knows that the people that he's writing to are experiencing suffering. And it seems to be something of a kind of blend of suffering that we might um term persecution, um, suffering directly because they identify themselves with Christ, but also suffering that is simply a result of living in a fallen world, where they experience injustice, exploitation, and evil. It seems like his readers are um, being unfairly treated. In some cases justice is being denied them and life is hard. And this raises in them questions, and not just for them, but for us too. How should we respond when we find ourselves in the crucible of life, especially when treated harshly or unfairly? Well, I think it's clear that Peter sees these moments as moments of opportunity, opportunities for the true identity and the hope of Christians to be put on public display, if you like, an opportunity for the light of Christ to burn brightly in the midst of darkness. Well, as I said, I want us to look at one of these areas. It's the what He has to say to those who are employees um, in verses in chapter two, verses eighteen to twenty-five. And I think I think it seems like a good one because it touches on themes that He's applying in other places. And I think it's also an area that I'm sure that many of us will just find relevant because of our lives. And in this section, Peter imagines the dynamic between servants and their masters. And the focus is on the conduct of the employee. Look with me at chapter 2, verses 18. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Well, he proceeds in this section to delineate between suffering for a legitimate offense versus unjust treatment in the context of doing good. Well, firstly, the message for us is that we must, in everything, do everything in our power to be blameless in our work environments. There should not be any grounds for legitimate accusation of wrongdoing. So, you know, we must be completely honest. There must be integrity and diligence. Christians should should be known as good workers. I wonder, does, does that describe you? But he really wants to talk about how should we respond when we experience injustice and harsh treatment while doing good. Look with me at verse 20. But if you... But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Well, the way that we respond in these kinds of circumstances gets to the core I think of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Maybe you remember Jesus' words in Mark 8 where he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Enduring injustice, according to Peter, is, see what he says? A gracious thing in the sight of God. And why? Well, he seems to see a direct connection to the experience of Christ. Jesus did no wrong, and yet he suffered. Well, you probably know as well as me that that many books have been written on the subject of calling. And I think we tend, when, when we hear that word as Christians, we tend to focus on questions of vocation and aspirations perhaps towards certain accomplishments. But it's interesting that the New Testament actually tends to use that word calling more in relation to how we live in the normal spheres of life. And I wonder this morning, do you consider yourself to be called to endure suffering? I'd like to suggest that we should have a category for this. In the midst of suffering, Christians actually, according to Peter, experience fellowship with a Savior who suffered for them. It seems that suffering is actually embedded in the DNA of Christian discipleship. And conversely, if you pursue, if you actively aspire to and pursue a discipleship that actively avoids suffering, then I think Peter would question whether you are truly a disciple of this Christ who suffered. Now, Peter specifically refers to the example of Jesus in the midst of suffering. If you look with me at verses 22 and 23, this is Christ's example. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Well, I I think this is a wonderful practical guide for us to consider when we're in the position of being unjustly treated. No one has experienced injustice in the way that Jesus did when he was arrested, tried, and crucified. He was handed the the cup of 100% proof undiluted evil and he drank it. He was betrayed. He was falsely accused by a corrupt court. He was sentenced to death by a weak coward who knew that he was innocent. And how did he respond? There was no deceit in his mouth. He didn't retaliate in any way. There were no threats. Well, that's what he didn't do. But notice the positive here, what he did do. Peter says that he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus entrusted himself to the justice of his heavenly father in that moment. He relied on someone beyond himself. He actively put his hope in the actions of another on his behalf. He knew that his father was the ultimate judge of the situation and the final judge of all evil the one who would put all things right. And that is why he was able to be confident that he could put his trust in him. Well, this might be raising a few questions in your mind. Things like, should we just endure injustices against someone in a kind of somewhat passive way and put our hope in God to eventually sort everything out? Well, I don't think the answer to that is a black and white answer. But I think that we would do well to start by emulating the posture of Christ in the midst of unjust suffering. Whatever we do or don't do when facing unjust suffering, we should entrust ourselves to God's ultimate justice on our behalf. You know, our, our culture generally elevates personal rights, and we see this manifested in many ways. We, we breathe this all around us. And I think we can perhaps adopt a posture that is often more self-reliant than reliant on our Heavenly Father. Well, if you're mistreated at work, for instance, I don't think there's anything wrong with seeking resolution through the HR department. But consider how you would go about doing that. What is your posture in the midst of of seeking justice? Are you bitter towards anyone? Is there a desire for retribution? Are you kind-hearted? Are your words restrained and entirely truthful? And ask yourself, where is my ultimate confidence placed in this situation? Is it in my ability to exact justice or is it in the one who judges justly? So, no, Peter is not calling Christians to be doormats, but recognize that this world is fallen and injustice and justice will not always be done here. Jesus experienced a sham trial, and you might experience a broken system too. My guess is that we'll all experience injustice to varying degrees because we live in a fallen world. And like Peter's readers, we will probably experience persecution also. I think Nathan prayed for Christians who were killed or injured just within recent weeks in other parts of the world. I think that as society normalizes attitudes towards human sexuality that are incompatible with the Bible, that Christians are going to increasingly experience active opposition. Are you ready to stand your ground on this issue when everyone around you in all likeliness, will be disagreeing with you and that you will feel tremendous pressure to conform? Prepare yourself for that moment now. Don't be surprised by it. So let us resolve to keep our conduct in this world honorable. And as he says in chapter 4, verse 19, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And in doing this, we will be following in Christ's footsteps. Well, in closing, I want us to just consider the last phrase of our passage, because this reveals really the purpose and the opportunity of all that Peter's been talking about. Look again with me at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. These echo Jesus' words from Matthew 5. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I think evangelicals rightly put a lot of emphasis on sharing the message of the gospel. Unless people hear, they cannot believe. Um, But Peter also, in his book, puts a tremendous amount of emphasis on the conduct of Christians. The way that we live matters and people outside our walls are watching and they are considering. And there's something compelling about the good deeds of Christians. And note, I'm not saying the perfection of Christians, but rather lives lived with a consistent pattern of love for neighbor. There's something compelling about that, that people notice. We should expect non-Christians to observe and for this to be compelling to them. Do people become Christians simply by observing good deeds? No. They must hear the message of Christ, repent and believe. But the light of good deeds is often an important part of the process. People see the tangible effect of the gospel as the Spirit brings fruit in the lives of God's people and especially how we behave when we are in the vice of suffering. And what is the result of this? Look at verse 12. On the day of visitation, the day when Christ returns to establish his everlasting earthly kingdom, some of them, some of those who are outside, who are watching, they will glorify him too. That is the opportunity that Peter is seeing. So this new year, let us adopt this vision for life. Let us firstly remember who we are. We've been given new birth into God's family through Christ's death. Remember that as God's children, this world is not your home. We belong to a different world and we look forward to it. Here we are exiles, not naturalized citizens. And secondly, let us display the marvelous light of Christ through abstaining from sinful desires. Let us recognize the spiritual fight that we are in And let us rely on the Holy Spirit to abstain from sinful desires. And let us display the marvelous light of Christ through doing good in all aspects of life. As we go back to work, perhaps this week or or next, let us strive to behave honorably, especially in situations where we feel unfairly treated, as we live in all aspects of life. Let us do the same. Let us remember that Jesus suffered in the midst of doing good and that we are called to have fellowship with him in those moments of enduring suffering. And as we do this, we will be living in the marvelous light of Christ. That we should expect to be a compelling witness to our unbelieving family, to friends, neighbors, and co-workers. And our hope is that some will see and will themselves be compelled to become worshippers. Let's pray together. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. O Lord, we thank you for what you have done in us, through the work of Christ on our behalf. We thank you that we have been born again into a living hope. We thank you for the inheritance that is ours through Christ. Oh Lord, we pray as we enter into a new decade that we would live in anticipation of that day when you return and you establish your eternal kingdom. And Lord, until that time, we pray that you would help us to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against our souls. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to do good in all aspects of life. And Lord, even when that's hard, when we have to endure suffering, we pray, Lord, that we would do so in hope that the light of Christ will be visible in our lives and that others will be compelled to become worshippers of Christ also.